0: I know, but it's not because this created problems that I didn't do this, the the podcast. The problem is there's a, you know how you get junk email? Mm -hmm. And junk phone calls? Mm -hmm. There is a lot of junk blockage of videos. TNT Sports Argentina every week claims that I'm using some of their stuff in my video of this class. Isn't that the most stupid thing you ever heard of? And I can't get them to stop. I have to appeal every single week to get them to take off their blockage, which prevents me from downloading it, cleaning it up and posting it. So if you ever see me starting and I haven't turned on the podcast, then please raise your hand cause it's off of my phone, because it is the only way, I've, I've missed some of the audio. But that's okay, we'll do the best we can. What we are doing, for those who are catching up on the podcast, if I can't get it to download correctly, is that we are in the section of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 32 to 34 to 35. And I've talked about the fact that it's, in the opinion of some scholars, such as Richard Hayes, it was added later, those two verses were, and T. Wright thinks otherwise. But there is a problem if we just have to take it as it is on the page and look at a chapter 11, verse 5. Every woman who prays. Now that's going to be public. How do we know it's public? Because he's talking about worship and the head coverings and all that stuff, right? Every woman who prays or prophesies, that is utterly public. That's happening in worship. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved fine, all that head covering stuff we tried to talk about a few weeks ago. So clearly, Paul is anticipating that women are praying in worship, that they are prophesying in worship. We know that he sent his emissary with his letter to the Romans was a woman named Phoebe. We know that he worked alongside and trusted a woman named Priscilla. And there are others. So what do we make of chapter 14, verses 34 and 35? So let, you know, one of the problems we have in reading the New Testament is that there are, well, there's a lot of churchy words in it, right? Right? Words you don't encounter elsewhere. Words like churchy, words like church. <laughs> In the Greek, the word is ecclesia. It doesn't mean church. It just means a public assembly. It could be the rotary. Or anything. The JCs, anything. Boy Scouts. So let's... Let's... let's Let's read it again with these words, public assemblies. Women should remain silent in the public assemblies. Now that is an uncontroversial statement in the Greco-Roman world. The first surprise would be that the women are there at all. Women were largely excluded from public assemblies. A woman's place was in the home. That was her private world. That was what she was restricted to. So women in the Greco-Roman world, such as in Corinth, did not have experience in, 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 a, in, a, in a public setting. Women should remain silent in the public assemblies. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. And we've done, I think in here, enough passages around the submitting business to understand that Paul's larger point about submission is the husband submits to the wife as the wife submits to the husband. The, There's a mutuality here which is, which is the shocking part to the Greco-Roman world. No woman in the, in, who is living in Corinth in 53 AD is going to be shocked by somebody saying to her, well, you must be in submission to your husband. That was the way of things. Verse 35, If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the public assembly. All of that is absolutely Greco-Roman. No question, no question at all. It's, it's shocking they're even there. Now, one thing that, that probably they did in these assemblies, these meetings of the house churches, was to separate the men from the women. And why do I say that? Because that was the way not only of the Greco-Roman world, it was the way of the Jewish world. If you went into Jewish synagogues of the time, and if you go into Orthodox synagogues today, you will find the men separated from the women. Some of us who are going to Israel are going to fly to JFK and get on a flight from JFK to Israel. Chances are we're going to see a few arguments from ultra-Orthodox Jews who are going to get on the plane and they're going to look at the seat and they're going to say, well, I can't sit there. There's a woman sitting next to me I can't. who's not my wife. I can't sit in that seat. And the steward, the flight attendant, I'm an old man, the flight attendant will be scarring around trying to fix that problem. It happens, It's happened to us every time. We've gone to Israel, we've had couples who had to split up because they were willing to do what the flight attendant asked them to do in order to accommodate these ultra-Orthodox Jewish men who would not sit next to a woman who was not their wife. So gender roles and gender um, uh, separation, right, is also probably at play in these churches. So one suggestion about what what is happening in this, paragraph, since it seems pretty clear that Paul at least is entertaining that women will both pray and prophesy, is that the women are, well, they're chattering a bit <laughs> in their little area because they don't do this. They don't, women did not go out in public. The public was the domain of the husband. This is nothing like the life you live. This is nothing like the world you live in. You can't make that leap. You know, sometimes when you come to the Bible, what you want to do is you want to take the biblical text, okay, whatever you see there, and you kind of want to bring it today. And so you can mat- put it all together and see what it says today. Other times when you come, you need to appreciate the distance between the people the scriptures is being written to and yourself, between their culture and our culture, because if you don't, you're just going to misread it. So, yes? I was going to mention,
1: and you could tell the story, the show we're watching right now, Under the Battle of Heaven, that's
0: only set in the late 80s, but these very... So, we're, we're, you know, we watch a lot of murder mysteries. This, <laughs> this, this is Patty's favorite. Patty's favorite is to turn on, like, Brit Box and watch a good episode of Vera. You know, something when there's been a good little murder, good little murder at the beginning, you know, somebody else has been murdered and you get the crime being solved and leaving clues along the way and so forth. Well, we're watching Under the Banner of Heaven, which was a book by Don Krakauer, a noted nonfiction writer. It's a book about a murders, some murders that happened in Salt Lake City in the early 80s. and. Part of what you see in it is a depiction of Mormonism and the life of these Mormons. And some of it focus on the, on the fundamentalist ones, or the ones who have sort of gone very fundamentalist, kind of like um, Jeffers did. and There's a good documentary about that, docu-series about that. But also just in regular Mormonism, there's a, there's a much stricter separation And stratification of men and women than there is in the households that you and I grew up in live in and and so forth Um, at the the church in the wedding the men are separated from the women in the wedding and in the home the husband is completely and utterly utterly in charge the wife cannot go against her priesthood leader and that's the husband. Yes. But don't we see I mean we see this in modern kind of times. Catholic Church, the nuns are subject to the, the priest. Uh, we see it in Quakerism, separation. Yes, there are there are a lot of this gender stratification. Screwed up. A lot of the gender stratification is still with us. There's still a lot of patriarchy in the world yeah. today, right? Yeah. So but what I'm telling you is this world, compared to Plano in twenty twenty two are worlds apart, okay you know sure there are quakers and and there are nuns and priests and that sort of thing. but in Roman Catholic churches, do the men sit separate from the women? No, they don't. Where do you have to go to find that an an orthodox the Amish maybe or an or an orthodox Jewish community, such as down here at Hillcrest in Spring Valley somewhere. Hill Hillcrest, and it's not, it's not common. It doesn't characterize the lives that people at St. Andrew leave. And so we have to come to this appreciating the distance. Or we misread this, because all of a sudden we think that Paul is saying that women have to be silent in churches, and Lauren should never preach. Because this is one of the two dominant passages used to keep women out of the pulpit. Okay. So that's why this matters because even today, this has, despite 2,000 years of Christianity, this hasn't been resolved. Let me give you an example of something that has been resolved, I think largely across the Christian community slavery. Slavery was endemic in the ancient world. Everywhere. Oh, stop it. <laughs> it was endemic in the ancient world. It was everywhere, not just Western cultures or African cultures, but Asian cultures and the rest. It was everywhere. The economies ran on the labor that could be be provided by slaves. And nobody, I think, including Paul, envisioned anything else. It was just the way of things. You can't go back to those days and find big abolitionist writings and so forth coming from Paul or anybody else, not just religious, but of any kind that I'm aware of. And you can find in the New Testament bits and pieces, much like this bit about women and the First Timothy bit about women, about slavery. Slaves obey your masters. That were used as late as the 19th century in America by slave owners, to try to tell their slaves that they needed to be obedient because that's what God wanted from them. But that whole argument, blessedly, lost. It went away. Christians today understand, through a theologically informed approach, to the New Testament, that those slavery passages are part of an ancient world and do not, they're not normative. They don't, they don't mean that we need to embrace slavery. And I think the same thing is true for these passages about women, particularly when you look at the specifics of it. Chapter 11, women pray and prophesy. Chapter 14, this little bit about women being silent. You can't even fit those two things together. So I'm inclined to think that this is an aside written by Paul. And it's an aside about something like the chattering, talking amongst women in these public assemblies, the churches, the house worship, because this is something they've never done and he he's a product of this world he just says look don't and when you get home ask your husband <laughs> don't be talking about it right there amongst yourself because of course what do they hear if they come to hear the gospel very much they're going to hear a lot about freedom right galatians written before this was written by Paul says you know if any was in Christ there's there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free male nor female. How's a woman who has been repressed her whole life going to hear that? Hallelujah, the day has come. Yes. right? I think. Yes, Hallelujah, the day has come. And they might well go further than Paul is comfortable with in exercising that, even though he uses women who they're a big part of his ministry. Phoebe is the one who carries the letter to the Romans, which means Phoebe is the one who gets all the questions. How much must Paul have trusted her? Where would that letter be read, the letter that Phoebe has carried? In church. church, When the house church meets. In the evening, we have a new letter. Who brought it? Phoebe did. Do they think that what's going to happen is Phoebe's just going to hand it over to somebody else because she's a woman and she can't talk about that? No, I don't think that's the story at all. That's not what you get out of Romans 16. Phoebe's the one who's going to get all the questions, you know that for sure. So, anyway, um, it's just unfortunate that in 2022 there are still too many churches that will use passages like this and the one from 1st Timothy to say to half of God's people you should not preach or teach men you can't preach and you can't teach men yes but in those churches women are accepting that. Well, you're saying in churches those women are accepting that. Yeah. Well, yes. In Mormonism women accept it. I, I, I shake my head. But, that, uh, but because, because somebody accepts, accepts, accepts something because of their tradition and their upbringing and their culture, does it make it right? Many, many people accepted slavery. Never, ma- never made it right. Never made it right. So acceptance is not, to me, the measure of what, is, of what God wants. What are we after? We are after God's leading of us to be the fully dimensioned people of God. And perhaps at one time, I understand where Paul is coming from. I do not think if he were a product of 2022 that he would write these words. We're in a different time and it's not even an incredibly... I mean, the time is very recent. That, that's, about, that's the thing we have to stop and think about. How long ago was it that women w- were given the vote in America? Mm-hmm. Uh, only a hundred years. Think about that. A hundred years? Wow. Wow. So, patriarchy, people like people like control people like power and patriarchy lives on and it's i don't think it's a it, i don't think it's a good thing and i don't think it's what paul would say to us today yes jan
1: is this the reason that some churches don't allow female clergy
0: yes so jan's asking me is this the reason some churches don't have female clergy yes because they'll take this and they'll take uh, a passage in Timothy, and they'll we use those as the basis, right, mm-hmm. for denying women the pulpit. This is why Beth Moore left the Southern Baptist Convention. I think she began to wise up and not accept it anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, good. If you ever heard her speak, you'd understand. Yeah, that's a that's a blessed woman. I, you, you just you just if you if you've ever heard Billy Graham's daughter speak. How could you come to the conclusion that God wouldn't water in a pulpit every Sunday? How do you do that? I, I don't know. I think it is, I think there are other reasons. So all I'm helping you see as this passage it's another one of many passages where you can't simply say the Bible says it, I believe it, that's it. It's just not that simple. You might wish it was that simple but it's not that simple. Not
1: blessed for this church for Lauren.
0: Yeah, we're blessed to have Lauren here at St. At Saint, at Saint Andrew. And it would be ridiculous that, of, that there are churches in the area which would not have Lauren be one of their clergy because, why? Because she's a woman. What? Kim or, or Kim, or Jennifer. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, okay. Yes. How do we know what to accept and what to reject? We work through it as a community. And we take on the task of trying to read scripture well. And it isn't always easy. And some things we probably get wrong. You know, Richard Hayes, his little I memorized his little, because it's only four steps, so I could actually memorize it. (laughs) His four steps, he says, the first step is to understand. What's on the page? What did it mean to the people then, like we're doing right now with these two verses, okay? And then he says, when you've done that, then, then you need to take it and you need to look over the full span of Scripture. Okay? Because, bl- turn to 11.5. How do you put 11.5 and 34 and 35 together? Is he? I mean, is he contradicting himself, you know, five minutes later? Probably not. We can't peer inside his mind. All we can look is what's on the paper. But clearly, women he's expecting women to pray and prophesy in worship. So how, are th- how could they do that and also keep silent? So the sec- first step is to really look at what's on the page, every piece of it, of what was written to the people for, who, um, to whom it's directed. Second step is to subject it to the full range of Scripture. The full range of Scripture. The third step then is then after you've done the first two, then you can bring it to our day and talk about what it might mean for us here in Plano on, in 2022 and then the fourth step is to actually live it. And of course, that's the hardest one, right? Actually living, actually living calls, Paul's calls to be Christ-like is the hard part of this. So, I, you know, and then when you get all that done, you still have to admit that, that it's an art. It's not a science. You know, one of the, some of you don't know, you know, I was baptized a Mormon when I was in college, so I have some familiarity with Mormonism. It didn't stick, blessedly. It didn't stick. But um, one reason Mormonism is so, has been so successful is it is so black and white. They will tell you exactly what you have to believe. They will, they will tell you, when you come to the things that you wonder about, to just put those questions on the shelf. Don't dig too deep in anything there. You might find stuff you don't, you don't need to worry about. Don't worry about that. Is your tithe up to date? Let me tell you the things you need to do. Boom, boom, boom. Very black and white. Very rules oriented. But that's not this. This, is, this Bible is It's a book of stories with some letters in it and some poems in it and some wisdom literature and some strange apocalyptic stuff and it's like God picks up all of this writing, this huge library of writings and just hands it to them and hands it to us and says, Wow! Okay. Well, work on this together and you'll come to know me and you'll come to see what I, what I hope for you. So. I don't think there's any other way to do it. Ann? Because of the times that these were, and I know you've mentioned this, wasn't that part of the rationale that they didn't want women to participate because they felt like they weren't as well educated at that time as some of the male journalists? And they didn't have a lot of exposure to speaking in public. Ann's bringing up another issue. I, I only touched, I'll rephrase her stuff here in a second, but. She's asking about women being educated. Women were not educated. Even the best educated women barely got educated in their early teens. Many women's education was stopped at the second grade. Why? They didn't need it. They did not lead public lives. So when they are free in Christ, hallelujah, they might be so excited that they don't appreciate what they don't know. So that's just another layer of the problem. It's just the frustrating thing can be thinking that you could take words written to people 2,000 years ago in in a culture very different from our own and not do the work, not do the work to go through those steps and ju- and instead just think, well, I can look at it here. It's in black and white. The Bible says that I believe it. And I'm telling you, that's that's cheating. And on top of it, on top of it, the Bible isn't written in English, is it? So no. you can't ever just look at the words and say, well, the Bible says that I believe it. You can't do that. It's in Greek. It's Greek to me. <laughs> right? So, or Hebrew. So, you know that's why we do this and it's a good and blessed thing that we come together in this way to, to to work through scripture and talk about the hard parts and the challenging parts, not just the easy parts and the parts that I think are are, are misused so you have anything you want to add to this Lauren? Yep. Okay <laughs> next week whenever you're here we have to get you a hand. I'll bring my hand. A handheld mic.
1: Hi. <laughs> I'll,
0: um, I'll be her hands. No. no.
1: Okay. Um, I told Scott before I graduated seminary, I actually wrote my one of my dissertations on this passage um, and submitted it to my New Testament professor. And I, because Perkins is a Methodist school where there are many women going through to teach and to preach, and so when I submitted it, There was an exercise my New Testament professor that went kind of like this. You guys go to church every Sunday? Maybe? Yes? When we are in church? Yeah. Do you ever hear anything that's confusing? (laughs) (laughs) Do you? Me? Yes, I do too. Um, Things you don't understand? Things you would probably lean over and ask your neighbor? Yes. Yes? Yes. Okay. The women, to the education point, had almost no education. So how confusing that would have been to show up to a church in 53 A.D. right after Jesus 20 years later, right?
0: 20 years-ish,
1: has now lived. The gospel is being preached. It's already confusing to us in 2022. This is 30 years after that. And there are a lot of women in here. Are we kind of chatty? Yeah. When I'm sitting next to my friend in worship, and I have a question about something that I have no idea about, you better believe I'm going to ask Susan, Nancy, whoever, right next to me. That was likely one scenario, one way you can imagine the textile like context of what is actually happening. It is so recent to Jesus. that doesn't. This scripture doesn't surprise me at all. Not at all. Um, and then you can bring it forward and talk all about, like Scott has very helpfully, about women in the church today. But I just wanted to offer that example so that when you are talking with people... I think it's a very good thing that Scott does to make everyone human. These aren't characters in the Bible. They're humans. And if we talk to our neighbors in our seats in worship when we're confused, that would be no different for them even more. Okay. Thank you.
0: So how long was your paper? Like,
1: Eleven pages.
0: Whoa. How did you get on it? Ninety-eight. Oh, she, 98. <laughs> she got an A. Of course she got an A. Of course she... <laughs> you don't graduate summa cum laude from seminary without getting A's on everything so okay so that's really I'm glad we had we talked through this I'm glad we talked through you know the the four steps a little bit it is I, one of the books on my shelf is called The Art of Reading Scripture, and I, I've come to learn that that, that that is what it is, and we can become better at it if we do some of the work, you know? And it's a glorious work, right? It's enjoyable work, at least it is for me. It is enjoyable work, it's not, it's not burdensome, um, but you have to be ready to do it and not always look for the easy button. You know what I'm talking about the easy button? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Jenny Morse has an easy button on her desk. She's had it for years. I like to stop by her office and go, boom. <laughs> that was easy. <coughs> OK, so anything else on all of that? Right, right. A product
1: of the context, yeah. not the inten- not yeah. necessarily the driving intention
0: behind it. Because yeah. I, w- I was reading Sarah Rudin again. She's the cla- classicist, not a New Testament scholar. And when she, when she took, looked at this passage, she says, well, 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 like Lawrence, she said, this sounds just like Paul. This sounds just like Paul. There's a problem there, and it has to do with the local context it isn't it isn't arguing that women for all time until Jesus returns cannot preach or teach men in the church so anyway anything else on that yes If there's too much... Because the house churches, how big are they? There's only like 30 people in the room. So if you get a group of people who are kind of chatting back and forth, it's not like it can be ignored. It's going to be distracting and and upsetting. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's N.T. Wright's point. N.T. Wright focuses on this is about order and worship. Period. And so... Disorderly conduct in worship of any kind would be something that Paul would discourage. Exactly. And, Patty? Uh, well, also, this, is a letter to Paul. this is a letter from Paul. I mean, from Paul, answering questions that we don't know. Right. From this church. So. Some people, a few, try to suggest that verses 34 and 35 are actually a restatement of what Paul heard from the Corinthians that could be it's not it, there are not many scholars who go that direction but there are some and 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 it all <coughs> it it all makes us <laughs> wow it all makes us it all makes us humble right when we come to the passages from scripture that are very difficult um, I've told you before that Richard Hayes is one of the preeminent Paul scholars in the world. And he, sa- he says, there are places in Paul which are just confusing. They're not very well written. He isn't sure what Paul is saying. And there's a passage in Peter where he says the same thing about Paul's letters, right? I think so. Yes, it's, we just have to recognize that these are all letters being dashed off from Paul to these people as he's the senior pastor trying to travel and answer questions and found churches and, and the rest of it. So, so golly. All right. Very good. Wow. From an abstract standpoint, what would happen if somebody stood up right in the middle of Arthur's Sermon and started speaking in tongues. Would somebody hide them off? If somebody stood up in the middle of Arthur's sermon and started speaking in tongues, we would probably all sit there in wonderment, and the security people would be very, very nervous. <laughs> right. The closest we get, the closest we get are the babies. We, we can send Andy after him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You get nervous, I'll tell you that. yeah. Well, the security people would get nervous for other reasons than why you got nervous. Okay. So, you know, all right. In the time we have left, we're going to begin to make a way into chapter 15. Now, chapter 15 is the preeminent (coughs) section in Scripture on Jesus' resurrection. We have the Gospels, we have many testimonies and statements about Jesus' resurrection throughout the book of Acts. It's taken for granted in all of the New Testament writings. But Paul here takes on the task of talking about the resurrection of Jesus, our own resurrection and the implications of that in a way that he does not elsewhere in the letters we have, and nobody else does. And that's why it's such a long, it's a long chapter, because there are a lot of things, a lot of points that he wants to make about the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason he does it for the Corinthians is because they have this over-spiritualized sense of what it means to be Christian. A piece of which is that the material world is just something to be escaped from. And of course, a doctrine like the resurrection of the body says exactly the opposite. The resurrection of the body speaks to a material life. A life that, where we can hug and touch and eat. Not, not a life of spirits or whatever else you might conceive of it. So, and that over-spiritualized sense of the gospel that the Corinthians seem to have has led them to all sorts of unfortunate places. And so now we get to the end of the letter and we find, we're going to be told by Paul what the biggest problem is that they have. Okay? I don't know how far we'll get today, but we'll press on next week um, with it. Okay. So, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. The good news, the evangelion, that's the Greek word, it's it's the, the word we get evangelism from. The glad tidings was the old King James way. I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news, good news, best news ever. I preach to you, which you have received. You heard it, you've received it, you've taken it in. You're meeting in these house churches and on which you've taken your stand. Your stand, that's a strong word, your stand. Why your stand? Because Christianity stands or falls on the truth of the claim that Jesus was resurrected. It's it's not a scientific claim, it's an historical claim. Like the claim that George Washington was the first president of the United States, or Abraham Lincoln the 16th, or, you know, I had a sausage egg McMuffin for breakfast on my way to a church meeting this morning. Which is true, Okay. Those are all historical claims, true claims. Our claim of the resurrection of Jesus is a claim to historical fact. And if it happened, it changes everything. And if it didn't, well, we'll we'll see what Paul thinks about that. So he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the good news I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this good news, you are saved. The good news about Jesus is about, it is the good news that God, through Jesus, has reconciled humanity to Godself. That the rebellion and the separation and the sin and death that resulted are gone in Christ. This is where we get language about Christians, we use about God's victory over sin and death being won on the cross. If you hold firmly, wait, by this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. This is, I don't want to get, I don't want to chase this rabbit. This is very, I'll call it Wesleyan we Wesleyans believe that if you want to walk away from all this having come to it you can you retain a free will sufficient to walk away from God other Christian understandings are different but 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 we believe that we have the free will to resist God including to walk away from God and so Paul says by this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed, you have faith in vain. Why did you ever start down this path if you're not going to stay on it? Why, are you gonna, why did you start down this path if you're going to invent something that seems more suitable to you? That is a problem in Christianity in America today. Robert Hasley, Arthur Jones, Scott Engel have all preached about this at much length, about there being a pseudo-Christianity in the land, a faux-Christianity in the land, um, characterized by researchers like Christian Smith as a moralistic, therapeutic deism, just sort of gods out there and just be a nice person, and God will be around to help you when you want. And That's the sum of it. And where do they get this? By talking to kids, teenagers. That's where they get these ideas from. And where do the kids get them from? They get them from their parents. So you know then that this pseudo-Christianity, bereft of all of the richness and truth carried in the creeds, it walks the land. And so... um, Paul wants them to know what the content, the essential content of the faith is. And that certainly includes the resurrection of Jesus. So he says, by this gospel you are saved. If you are formed to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Faith in vain. For what I I received, huh, what he received. I passed on. Well, where did he get it from? Good question. Hmm. He doesn't say that, though, here, does he? He doesn't say there was, you know, the Lord spoke to me, which he kind of says sometimes, practically. Maybe what he's talking about is the time that he spent in the years, first years after his meeting with Jesus, with other with Christians recounted in Acts and in his letter to the Galatians where where they passed on to him this these next sentences because what we're gonna to come to is something that's very much like a creed you could sort of see it in English they could sort of print it that way in English I have done it that way on slides Maybe I should have done it. I'll remember to do that next week if I can. But certainly in the Greek, it, 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 it reads and, and we hear it creedily. So he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Top of the line, top of the story, top of the list. Nothing more important. You don't get this. There's no point in going on. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, which scriptures? The Old Testament Testament scriptures. Exactly. They don't have the New Testament. The Old Testament scriptures. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures because the Christians understood, and they heard Jesus say that if you Understand Jesus. If you if you understood the Old Testament well, you would see that it brings you to Jesus. That He is the fulfillment of what is time and time and time again spoken of in the Old Testament, which is part of what we've been doing on Mondays with Isaiah. So number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried. Sort of number two. Sort of number three. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. All grounded in the Old Testament as far as Paul is concerned. And now, and that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. And then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than five hundred Of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, have died. Because fallen asleep is a euphemism for for having died. Okay. Then he appeared to James. This would be Jesus' half-brother, who was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' lifetime, but became a follower of Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection. Then to all the apostles... And last of all, last of all, he appeared to me also as to one uh, abnormally or untimely born. Well, what does that mean? It means that he missed out on too much. (laughs) You know, Paul wishes that once he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and saw the truth, that he wished he had been one of those walking across, walking through Galilee and all that stuff with Jesus, not being a persecutor. Of of the Christians, but having been one of the twelve from the beginning, of course he would. So in that sense, he was untimely born. It was later than he wanted. It's kind—I of, feel that way sometimes, even in my own own life, because God didn't really grab me until my late late forties. And Patty and God teamed up, and and yeah, they did. So, <laughs> and I just wish it had happened like when I was in my. 40s or 30s or 20s or something. My teens. I don't know. Because I feel like I'm, I, I would have I missed out on so much. But there we go. It is as it is. So here we go. Died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom were still living. Though some have died then appear to James, and to all the apostles, and finally to Paul. The people who work on this paragraph, people I respect a lot, like N.T. Wright, James Dunn, other names I don't use much in here, but they're just always worthwhile. You know, believe that Paul received this creedal piece in the years 34, 35, after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Um, Because there's about two or three years where Paul is working and with other Christians. And it's recounted in Acts, it's recounted in Galatians, not a lot of details. And after that he kind of goes dark for a while. And when you start there and you ask yourself well how long would it take for something like this to be to be developed and become something that is passed on sometime a little bit of time so people like James Dunn for whom I have a lot of respect would say you know maybe a year this was probably appearing within a year of Jesus' death and resurrection, and why is it sort of in the Greek? Da- ta-da- ta-da- ta-da, even in the English, it is. You can break it down sentence, 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 sentence. Da-da-da, why is it like like that? Because it's like the Apostles' Creed. You can actually memorize it. It's easy to memorize if it has a little rhythm to it and it's broken into pieces and it's yeah. And so, the challenge that Paul sets out for the Corinthians is that they can go get on their little boats and drive, sail them over to Jerusalem and Galilee and they can start inquiring of the, some of these 500 people. Because the testimony is that it isn't just the testimony of one or two or twelve people, but it is the testimony of... Of hundreds of people, that Jesus was resurrected. Okay? And that is, that's crucial. In the ancient world, eyewitness testimony was everything. That was the gold standard. The gold standard for historians was eyewitness testimony. We don't quite do it that way now. We like to rely on documents and stuff, photographs and stuff, but in the ancient world, they didn't have much of that. So eyewitness testimony, that was, that was it. If you could talk to somebody who had been there, that's what the great ancient historians went for. So this, this, this little creedal paragraph is all about the eyewitness testimony of literally hundreds of people. That could be inquired of because most of them are still alive. Because it's on how long it's only been. Let's let's put the letter to fifty-three. So it makes it twenty-three years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Plenty of people who would have seen the resurrected Christ are still alive twenty-three years later. Don't let life expectancies in those times fool you too much, because the life expectancies of people were drastically reduced by the fact of so much infant death, so many people, after being born, not making it past the age of five. And there were still plenty of people who lived to be 60 or 70 or something like that. So, anyway. So, I'd invite you, you know, this week to... You know, to go back and look at this creed. Maybe see if you could kind of work out a r- rhythmic way to sort of say it to yourself. You can do it in English. You don't have to try to do it in Greek. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, 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 and ask yourself, well, why is this of first importance? First importance, Paul says. Why? What is it about this? And we'll talk about that when we come together. Next week, okay? So now I'm going to close us in prayer. So would you join me, please? Yes. Can I ask you a oh, sure. Um, two I have a who's right now, a okay. A um, so repairing, um, these repairing an aneurysm. For the last three years. So he's in physical okay. good good that's awesome okay well let's pray gracious lord we do lift up this friend who has had an aneurysm and and is struggling with heart health and and that has to be very scary And a and and a, a prayer of thanksgiving for a biopsy that turned out well and that's kind of the way of things for us all isn't it we have some things that worry us and turn out poorly and other things that worry us but turn out well but we know that through it all through each step of it you are with us when we're frightened and when we're joyful when we're worried and when we're happy and we are we're grateful that for your love We're grateful that you walk with us through all that we go through, good and bad, and we just pray that you will bring us here back together again next week um, as we will resume our reading of Paul's letter and come to a deeper understanding of Jesus' resurrection so that, so that, We can share this truth with others. For in that we will be ever truer disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.